I realized that if you really, really, really want to be a sales professional, it's got to be a lifestyle. You got to live it. You got to breathe it. It's got to be part of your natural DNA. And it's really got to be something you take in because it could bring you a lot of exciting life lessons. The one and only Keith Hoffman, Senior Director at Process Map, is with us this week. Keith walks us through his first sales job where he was ranked number one in the country, his memory blue days when he was living out of his car, and why he thinks sales is a lifestyle, not a career. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Keith Hoffman, thank you for joining us today. Anytime, fellas. Anytime. The Hoff coming at us from South Florida. Been waiting a long time for this. <laughs> born, and raised, born and raised South Philadelphia, now residing in South Florida. The way it's meant to be. Oh, we're gonna talk. <laughs> we're gonna talk about that. The whole the migration. The migration. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will get into that. <laughs> but before before we get going though, just to kind of like set the stage, I was checking it out. You were with us 2007 to 2008. It was December 4th. And I remember because I, uh, I, met, I, I yeah, I'm not going to get into details, but December 4 was uh, my first day and it was a Monday. I'm pretty sure when I was hired out, I think it was like we started the talks in March and then they had a bidding war that delayed it 30 days. And then it was like, April, okay. May. okay. All right. So, so we'll, we'll get into that. I just wanted to set the stage for the folks who are listening in that you are, you are, you are old school. You're like an original gangster memory blue. No, 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 no. Not one of the original. I am the original. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, let's talk about that. So tell us a little bit about you growing up. And I think everybody will know where I'm from because my muggy accent pretty much comes comes out immediately. Is um, you know I grew up in basically the suburbs of of Southwest Philadelphia or South Philadelphia, and uh, pretty pretty rough growing up, man. I mean, my parents didn't have any money. My mom was just a you know a, a secretary for a produce company. You know, didn't you know ends meet. You know, she but always a hard worker, and we'll, we'll get into her how her work ethic really you know, made an impact on me. Um, father was just a grinder, man. He just, uh, as roughneck as you could get. I mean, as you know, uh, to, for him to, for him to think that he would have a son that would be a professional salesperson, you know, if you were to tell him that back day, he would just laugh at you. But, um, you know, for example, just, you know, the early days, I just remember some just rough times. I mean, I grew up in a family, didn't have any money, just in a one bedroom apartment. I'll remember, uh, you know, basically as a kid for many years, my dad worked at a, at a plumbing company. And every night at five o'clock in the morning, hey, Keith, get up. It's time to wrap you in the blanket. You know, they had a car, no heat. So, you know, the Philly in the dead of winter is just freezing. It would throw me in the back of the car. And, you know, a couple hours later, I'd be back home, go back to sleep. go. And this was just life for me. And I, I think that is something that I remembered early on as a kid. You know about you know that was just an example of of just um, you know that blue collar type of upbringing. When you got older, when you're in the high school, what kind of what kind of person were you? Yeah, so let me get into that. And, and from uh, from where I moved, I moved into a place called Falkroft, 
which is this is the belly of Southwest Philly. I mean, it's it's you know you can see the airport. This is where it all started, you know, so to speak. Around seven years old is when I became, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say who I am today. You move into, I think the first day I moved there, I got into a fight. I got beat up. I mean, that's just that's an example of the environment you live in when you're when you're in Philly, right? Uh, just a blue collar town. Just a million kids everywhere. You know, you have row homes. You have it's just a highly populated area. So, you know, with that commas, you know, you're playing sports every day. You start, you know, it's not like today where, you know, every kid sitting in their house. I mean, you know, your parents kick you out at seven in the morning or after school, you don't come back until it's dark and maybe even hours after. And uh, just a different mentality from what it is today. You know, it's a place where respect is earned. It's not given, right? And you kind of learn that. At about nine, eight years old, I got into swimming pretty heavy. That's when I started realizing I was gifted as an athlete. Um, and, you know, particularly with swimming, you know, I, I didn't even like it, frankly, right? But it was just like, you know, it was one of those things, and, and Philly gets hot as hell. The minute May hits, you want to be in a pool, right? And you were able to go into the pool a month early if you're part of the swim team. I'm like, all right, I'll do a couple laps if I can, if I can uh, be part of the team. So what, uh, what those guys early, uh, learned very early on is I was, I was pretty much a stud. Within a couple of months, I was setting like the eight and under records at pretty much every pool I swam at. And they pretty much figured out they had something. And um, that's kind of where the tradition goes in the high school, right? About, uh, I guess it's 20 miles, pretty far from where I lived. I went to a high school called my senior Bonner High School. It's actually, it's the high school that's in the movie uh, Silver Linings Playbook. So if you ever watch that movie, it's that, that, that's the school okay. that wow. actually, actually, anyway, so I went to school, high school there, you know, very, it's, you know, all boy Catholic school. Like I went to grade school, Catholic school. So all boy Catholic school, I mean, just, we all know what kind of shenanigans go on in, in those types of environments. You know, I wasn't going to swim my first year. Like I said, I just wasn't into it. And then, um, everybody told, you know, all the seniors and the coach that I was just like psycho, you know, uh, talented swimmer. So I basically was stuffed into a locker and forced into it. And I, I didn't like lockers. So I figured I would, I would attend swim practice, but, um, so that got me to high school, uh, terrible student. I mean, I don't think I learned a damn thing. Um, just being completely candid with you. It just it wasn't <laughs> something I was into. Right. That's all right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, so got really into swimming at that point. That's when you start to develop a passion for it, camaraderie with your teammates, hang out with them outside of school. Um, you know, you build a lot of friends, a lot of kids, you, you know, you know how it is. If you go from what, you know, one town to, you know, in school to the next, you kind of learn a different group of friends. So that's, that's when I went to high school, um, did very well in swimming and in high school finished, uh, you know, all Catholic, you know, all three years, uh, maybe all four years. I don't know. One PCL is my final. I did all that. Then, uh, then it was time for college, and that's when swimming, you know, had its uh, had its moment, right? And I I decided that I was going to swim, so I was recruited to LaSalle University, which is a D1 school. I went. I was recruited by Penn State. I, I made a lot of you know even a lot of D1s, but you know for you know my SATs sucked. So Penn State wouldn't take me. A lot of the D schools I wanted to go to take me, but LaSalle would because, you know, they just, they knew who I was throughout the area. So uh, I couldn't get in there my first year because my grades were so terrible, right? So I trained with the U.S. national team, which is who I've been training with. And I was part of U.S. nationals my entire life, just top 16 in the nation, all the accolades, all that, all that jazz. So uh, halfway through the first semester, my shoulder went, man, and that was it. 
that was it for swimming. And, um, and why that's important today is because I think, uh, you know, professionally speaking, I think that the tragic, or I should say unsatisfaction of the ending of my swimming career, just basically kind of was a natural transition to say, all right, we have unfinished business. How in the hell do we find our vehicle? Um, many years later, I found sales and we'll get there. But so basically that went to Westchester University. I became, uh, you know, keg stand champion, a lot of basement parties. Um, and that's what, but that's actually when I got into school. But imagine, you know, you didn't learn anything through grade school because I, I mean, ADHD, I mean, unlike anything you've ever seen. And um, I basically had to go to college without kind of an understanding of anything so did one year at local community they saw this pretty bright kid and I kind of just figured things out graduated uh from Westchester after five and a half years I think I was on the party schedule and then uh basically my fifth year I or I'd say not even my fifth year I started working for a company uh called Haverford Systems what did what did you think swimming kind of taught you? Because it's a big part of your life, obviously. How does that imp- implement your mind, influence your mindset, like as a sales professional now? So, uh, great question. And and how how swimming influences your mind as a sales professional? Swimming is as a you against yourself sport, right? If, if anybody's ever you know, go outside and swim ten laps, tell me how it goes for you. It'll go shitty. It'll go real shitty for me. Yeah, it's it's. I can't even do it to this day. My body's so beat up. So, basically, uh, it teaches you um, discipline, right? It teaches you like, look, this is you know, it what you want out of your swimming career is what you put into it. It's you against the laps. It's you against the pool. It's you against dedication. Um, and basically, it's about commitment. And you know, when it when it, when the rough gets tough. You know, uh, you know, what kind of moxie do you have to plow through? And I think, I think that are, those are some of the fundamental character traits and, and skills that you acquire that have really helped me become, you know, one of the hardest working sales pros out there. What were you thinking about doing? Like, did sales hit you at all either in high school or in college? Well, I had a lot of fr- successful friends uh, who had dads were these, you know, very successful sales professionals, or, or let's just say business, right? Because that was my major. I actually knew going, even going into college, I knew that, look, I, I, I'm not this finance guy, right? So you're not going to, you're not going to plug me into some finance role. Uh, medical school is just gone, right? Uh, being, being a lawyer, I mean, I was on the opposite side of needing one a few times, right? So, so I always knew that I was going to have to use my grit, determination, and personality, and my let's be honest, I'm charismatic, right? Right. I always knew I could pl- plug that plug that into a role, and I I, I kind of knew sales was going to happen. I, I do feel fortunate in the sense that I did know what I wanted to do. I know a lot of people you know, no kind of going into college, what they want to do, but I didn't have the options other people had. So I was just like, sales is it. Talk to us about Sidcor, how you found it, what you were doing, what it taught you. Sidcor is a, is an organization. Um, basically they will partner with big clients like a Verizon or a Comcast. And basically what they'll do is it's a, it's kind of like a marketing pyramid scheme, right? You kind of build a team. If you, big enough you have your own little office and you just have foot soldiers running around in the given territories so you're given a map you know what they do and you have applications so for me i was hired to the uh, verizon b2b foot soldier campaign so basically 
you're walking, you know, it's like, you know, they give you a segment of like, you know, DC, actually, well, I really like at DC. So they give you a section of a map and they're like, here you go, go get as many apps as you can in a day. Right. So basically you would have to walk into, and I, I look day one, I'm like, what, <laughs> you know, like I have no clue what I'm doing. So essentially they try and teach you little things like for two days and then it's like, all right, go. And then you have somebody shadow you and then you walk into a business. If you know, you'd be like, hi, I'm here on behalf of Verizon. You know, uh, I'm here to check your phone bill. Like what? It, do you want to check my phone? Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. It, it's okay. Just get your phone bill and I'll explain. I'll look at a couple of things. So if they have Verizon, I'm basically looking for things that they don't have like DSL back in the day, even before BIOS was out. I'm trying to see if they have a package I, I could upgrade them on. Uh, and God forbid they bring out Sprint or AT&T. I'm, closing them on the spot you're they're signing an app and they're switching over and that can happen pretty pretty quickly so i would say the first week i got zero um and then the second week i got 20 because i was just like it on my fifth day it just went all right i understand this i understand why he's saying no i understand what i need to say to get him to turn around they taught you things like sense of urgency like you can't walk out the door. There is no second time. You come back in, he's telling you to leave. Uh, impulse factor, right? This is all the beginning of how I learned transactional sales, where the the fat, you know, the impulse is is the factor that really drives. You know, if you're on phone sales or you go door, you have someone come to your store, you have to drive the impulse because once they leave, the impulse is gone. It's the same thing when you sell cars. I mean, impulse factor is everything. Uh, I learned how to accept rejection, right? There's people who chase me out of their their, their car, uh, you know, machinery places with a hammer. Like, you ever come back to me again? I'm gonna, you know. I mean, just picture me. I'm in a full, so every day you wear a full business suit, right? You're out there and, I mean, if there's a blizzard, we don't give a shit. Good luck. Go out. Hit the apps. You need two. I would hit six. Just to prove a point. In the summer, you're hot, sweating. Tell someone who cares. Go out. We want five apps from you because we're low on our numbers, right? So I was, I was the golden child. Everyone else is hitting maybe 15, 20 apps a day. I was getting 70. So, uh, you know, I was number one in the country amongst thousands of reps for for a long time and um if you guys want to know about how it fizzled out basically i started to get frustrated with certain things within the company but you know with the you know advancement um i'm like look i'm not banging on doors i don't like leading people i realized very quickly i don't like managing teams i like managing my own book of business so uh that's when i started looking that's how i found uh how i find memory blue how did the pay work? Uh, yeah, left out the most important part. Yeah, 100% commission. If you don't sell something, you don't eat. So basically, it's it's they give you a binder full of apps, go out there, and uh, if you don't sell something, your paycheck's going to be light. So uh, you better go out early. And if you don't have an app, you better come home at 9 o'clock at night. How did you like that job? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Because one, I was killing it, right? Two, I realized very quickly, like, if I could just tell this guy that his bill sucks and Verizon's better, he's going to listen to me or overcoming objections and, like, challenge of walking to a business having no idea what they had. That was fun. The thrill of, of not knowing how much I was going to make in a given day or on Sunday night, because you're paid every Friday based on what you made the prior five rolling days. So it's like, what's my paycheck going to be on Friday? I know Keith Hawkins is going to be over a thousand bucks. 
Meanwhile, everybody else is making two and three hundred. So I, I glorified the business, and for me, I enjoyed it. And I loved every minute of it. That's great. And then what? Uh, so you ended up. This was all in Philadelphia. Actually, no. So uh, let's take a step back. Um, about a year into uh, doing the Verizon B two B campaign for Philadelphia, they were opening an office in Vienna, of all places, Virginia. So uh, they took the studs of the studs to open up. FiOS was just coming out, so we're like, all right, we, we need we need sledgehammers who can go and do <laughs> no excuses. <laughs> Top five, you know, uh, you know, no no bullshit kind of guys, right? Send them out at seven thirty. They ain't coming back till six thirty. They'll have a stack. All right. So basically, it was like one of these Thursdays. They were like, "Hoff, moving to DC." I'm like, "Yeah, sweet. <laughs> like, let's do it." I was single. I was, you know, you know, I just, I didn't give a crap. So, uh, and I continued with Sid core doing everything, just killing it. You know, I, I led every person there still number one in the country, even among the best of the best. And, um, and that's, you know, kind of, you know, uh, fast forward. That's when I started talking to recruiters and that's why I met Lisa, who was representing memory blue and Navy horse. Lisa Kelly, Lisa Kelly. Boom. Puma. Puma. Love Puma. Oh, Puma. <laughs> That's funny. But I got to tell you the story about Lisa, right? So she's, she's recruiting for not memory blue. So this is where it's kind of interesting. She's not recruiting for memory blue. I walk in, I'm, I'm like, straight. you can't even imagine the suit I'm wearing. I mean, I had like a pair of black pants. I think I borrowed someone's jacket completely didn't match. I don't even know if I had a tie on. And she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, uh, uh, sell. <laughs> I didn't know. And, but but I, I started to hear about how DC was big in technology. So that was kind of where I was going. I was interviewing with like icon printers, right? I remember you were a 5'9 guy back in the day, Chris, right? I've interviewed yeah. them. Yeah. Um, the first interview we had uh, was with, I had Microsystems. Remember those guys? Yeah. It might even US. still be, it might even, might even still be around. And then, what we realized is that nobody wanted some scrapper from Philly who's just been knocking on doors for like scrapper. two years. Right? So uh, she's like, so after like three interviews and us talking, she's like, look, I got this group of guys upstairs. <laughs> what is this, a fraternity? But she's like, she's like, no, Keith, after getting to know you, she's like, look, I think you'd be a perfect fit. I said, so tell me what they do. And she had a really interesting way of putting it. She's like, these guys bridge the gap between people who need software and, and the people who sell it. And basically she said, um, these guys help, you know, orchestrate meetings for, you know, organizations and their, their sales representatives who, uh, who could benefit from the, from, just a little extra help from the kid pounding the phone and finding qualified opportunities. I said, all right. He's like, well, let's go. So she walked me upstairs on the spot. I walked around. I don't even know. I think you were on a phone. Mike, I remember it vividly. There was Adam to the right. Adam, Adam Parker. Cole, who was Adam, Parker. Adam Parker. Uh, and there were a couple other guys like Justin, Brad, Mark, Ru Mike Rubin. Rubin. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, Brad, Mike hey, Rubin. Brad. Yeah, then I walked back. It was Lee. Uh, Lee Lawson. Lee Lawson. Then I go to the back room. There's like James Schieffer. Wow. Um, Chris yeah. Holstein. Oh, uh, 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 D Jack Wagner, just D -Jack. right in the front. D Jack. 
uh, uh, Philip Gaddis. <laughs> Justin <laughs> G. Gaddis. And uh, that was it. That was Memory Blue at the time. David Gottschalk was there Gottschalk, as well. Gottschalk. Gottschalk. Yeah. So that was the Memory Blue crew at the time. We're talking like, what, eight guys, seven guys? That's the whole so company. I'm like, yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing these guys, Busty, Busty Tires Chops, like they're, on, they're in the middle of calls, and I, I, I think Schieffer threw something at Holstein. I'm like, all right, I'm in. I'm like, first of all, this is the type of culture that I will fit very, very well with. So uh, I'm like, Lisa, I'm like, look. You know, I didn't tell her. I'm like, I'm like, look, I'm about 30 seconds away from having to move back to Philly because I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, I'm not, I don't even have a place to live right now because they, you know, the guys who I was living with uh, at Sidcor, they all got fired. And for months I had been just meeting, you know, hanging out with, you know, I had a girl and she would just let me sleep there a couple of nights, a couple of nights I'd have to sleep in my car. Um, I remember the first night I worked at memory, but we're skipping ahead a little bit, but the first night I uh, walked into Memory Blue, I slept in my car outside in the parking lot, a little bit down to no one see me. I mean, it was, I was, it was a really rough time. I get it. But I, but one thing uh, that made me sign up to Memory Blue, other than that, Mark, remember we met at that uh, diner? Yep. Yep. Of course. Remember when uh, you were like, "Hi, oh, yeah, you went me for coffee?" I'm like, "Yeah, you, should, you know." Sure. You know, I show up. I don't even know what I was wearing. I was probably sweating. I think I just, you know, I, I was <laughs> literally, uh, I was in bad shape because I had told the people I, I didn't want to work for you anymore. So I went like a couple months without pay. Yeah. And um, so I show up. He's like, he's like, uh, you want to get something to eat? And you're like, I'm going to get a bagel. Lady comes. I'm like, yeah, I want a meat lover's omelet with double <laughs> bacon and double sausage. <laughs> Absolutely starving. Haven't eaten a solid meal in roughly maybe three weeks. So uh, I'm like, Mark, you don't mind if I kind of dig in a little bit. He's like, nah, dude, go ahead. So I'm like, all right, because this is the most unprofessional thing you can do on an interview. <laughs> so, you know, my, Kanye's not even done half his bagel. I'm done. Right? My whole meal, I'm like, all right, ready to talk? <laughs> I'm just like, what the hell happened? <laughs> but it worked out, man. Here we are. Well, I just remember what you said. You, you were like, look, you know, uh, just from talking, he's like, Keith, are you hungry? You know, you, you, you want to work hard? I'm like, I'm like, I guarantee I'll be your number one performer in 30 days. And you're like, all right, fine. I think you can do this. And I said that right to you. I'm like, all right, what's the next step? Let's go. I'm ready on Monday. So uh, I think, you, you know, you always got to close. I think, you know, whatever. But the, the fun fact is Lisa Kelly, I was her first placement, believe it or not. That's amazing. So Keith, what, what advice would you give yourself the, the night before you started at Memory Blue when you're in your car? Probably be more humble, right? Just the kind of the person I was, I came from a very competitive environment with swimming. And um, I guarantee the guys I worked with thought I was the most arrogant dude that, you know, ever existed just because, you know, I was just aggressive. I was loud talking on the phone. I'm like, Metro, you know, told when we were going to these meetings, I'm just like, I, I don't know. I was just, I was rough around the edges and I was, wasn't humble. wasn't professional. I mean, I, I guess there was something I had to learn, but if I could take a step back, I would, I would definitely tell myself in professional cultures, the alpha male thing is it works. You just, it, it just go into any environment and with a humble setting, if you get to know the people well enough, then you can, then you can let, you know, that be exposed. But that was something I would. The next thing I would tell myself is it, it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. 
I thought, you know, a couple months at memory blue, I'm going to be this, you know, senior level, you know, quota carrying sales guys and be flying around on planes with the corporate credit card and, you know, living the life. And, and little did I know that there was a lot of years and hard work ahead of me. So just to understand it was a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and what, what I had to realize was that, you know, there are going to be times where it's okay to fail. It's okay to not be number one, particularly if you're starting in a new culture, in a new environment, with a new profession, and it's something you don't have experienced before. It's like I really beat myself up for, I would say, the first couple of weeks. And I'm not going to say I was going to quit, but I just wish I would have just been a little more um, realistic, if you will. Just, you know, if it sucks, that means you're learning. And if it doesn't suck, you're no longer learning. You should quit and go work for somebody else because the minute you're not learning, it's not painful and you don't, you feel, you don't feel like you're drinking through a fire hose. You're not in the right place. And um, I thought that maybe like, you know, this wasn't for me, especially in the first couple of weeks. Um, and I just, I wish I could tell myself, Hey, it's going to be, it's going to be a challenging. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting ride. It, it may even, you know, come with some tough times, but when you're learning, that means you're growing. And I thought that was very important that I would tell myself. When I asked uh, newly hired SDRs, like what's the one thing that you realize about the job now that you didn't realize during the process? And they almost universally tell me it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It was only hard for like two weeks. And then, um, <laughs> I got to be straight with you. It just, just because, it, well, there's a difference between what was hard for me and what, was, what I feel is hard for other people. For yeah. other people, it was hard. It was hard to pick up a phone when they had just learned a client's sort of core competencies and talking points and to try and talk about that, that was the easy part for me. What was hard was not knowing how to, you know, orchestrate an email or, or, um, or, or, or talk, right? Like, I mean, if you could look at my grammar back then, I mean, it'd be like a horror scene. You know what I mean? Like, I just, because there were things that I just wasn't good at. Like, the, the, the communication through emails or just the speeching pad. I mean, like I said, yeah, up until this point, I've never been professionally coached and personally coached. So, I mean, it just, I was rough around the edges and just the talking patterns and how to carry myself professionally and just little incremental sales techniques were hard for me that I eventually learned the easy part was the hard work. I mean, that was, you know, that was what came natural. What else, what else about the memory? Do you remember your clients? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, what I remember at memory blue is you guys gave me an easy one and a hard one. Okay. And, and I'll never, I think, you know, guys were know this is going, but I was given uh, ecosystems, ecosystems, basically it was electronic medical record, you know, back in, you know, 07, 08, this is fairly new. And a lot of hospitals were just getting used to this stuff and Clarabridge. And that was easy to get a lead because at that point in time, everybody was already looking into that. The, the turnover rate, I get it. If someone actually picked up to getting them to a lead, it wasn't that tough. I could follow up. And, you know, it was, it was, it was challenging because I had to pick up a phone, cold call someone who was basically in the uh, emergency room, which some people would think that's hard. I'm just, I'm plowing through with my pitch. I just, no mercy. And, uh, you know, I, I could get a lead. But Clarabridge was a different animal because it was very, very complex software, you know, a different culture, you know, the sales reps, would like remember that they would uh, be very strict about the lead they would accept yep. versus not accept. Yep. Ecosystems would take it. They, they would take uh, if if it was 
fairly qualified they would take it. But at, at Clarebridge, they were tough, man. I mean, they would they would basically say it needs to be an active project. So that's that was the client that toughened me up because uh, they sold basically back in the day. If you're McDonald's or if you're Delta Airlines, right, you needed a data mining tool that could understand the voice of the customer or the voice of uh, the voice of what's going on across the web. And that did have had a very sophisticated way of doing it and making sense of it and analyzing. it. How did you you were successful with both of them? You know, by the end of it, both of them were fight, fighting over you. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Yes. Uh, yeah, remember that. Yes. Yeah. I remember the day you pulled me in and uh, told me what was going on. You know, how I fought through it was uh, with Clara Bridge, um, that was when LinkedIn first started coming out. And, uh, you know, you, Mark, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm not trying to you know, hurt hurt your back patting you here, but, <laughs> you know, you would sit, sit me down and, and basically just show me how to navigate by, you know, prospecting and, and finding people on LinkedIn. Um, all we were looking for was a particular title and a particular person at a particular organization. I could find their phone number, right? I could find their email. That's, that's light work. What I needed was the person. And, you know, you showed me what to do. And after a very short period of time, I took LinkedIn and ran with it um, to levels today that not even people who work at LinkedIn are, are capable of. We were trying to get you exposed to training and the way we wanted to do things. The way we wanted you to open a call. Do you remember any of those yeah. things? Still use any of that stuff? <laughs> what do you mean use that? It's 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 the core of my of my of of my prospecting. Look, the things that I've learned at Memory Blue have not only made me who I am today, but I use them every single day to this day. I mean, what is it? Year twenty twenty. We're talking fourteen years later or 12 years later, whatever the case may be. Every single phone call I make, I, I, I still reference all of the Sandler sales tactics that you guys still use today and basically it brought in house at this point, it sounds yeah. like. You know, just, you know, our trainings that we would do, was it every morning or once a week, Mark? Once a week. Once a week, we would do mock calls. I do mock calls with people. They say, mock calls, I've been doing mock calls. Like, yeah, I've been doing them for 12 years. Get over it, let's go. Uh, you know, understanding tactics like, Every single cold call I make today, I, I say, hello, this is Keith Hoffman. Did I catch you at a bad time? Nice. And, and let's be honest, Mark and Chris. Remember the first time you guys tried to ask, get me to ask somebody if it was a bad time I called? I, I looked at you like you had 16 heads. I said, there's no way this is going to work. I know. And like, a mag and like a magic trick, the first time I worked, he's like, yeah, I got 10 minutes. I'm like, all right, all right, now I'm listening. I was sweating because like, if it doesn't work when this guy says it, dude, he's never going to do it again. Not going to work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, uh, so basically other things like 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 the pain funnel, like understanding the pain funnel and really kind of taking people down the path towards, you know, letting the client talk more than you talk. The client talks 80% of the time, yeah. you talk 20% of the time. You know, when they when they say certain things, use the pain funnel. Ask them, All right, you know, well, we're using this. All right, well, how does that help you? Or, and then just getting them down a natural course of regression where you can identify what their challenges are, what their pain points may be. Um, the upfront contract, hey, I just want to tell you about the software that I have. It does this, this, and this. I only need it about 120 seconds of your time. If after 120 seconds you're not interested, I'll hang up. Does that sound fair for you? I mean, these are things I literally have in a script yeah. for my BDRs today. Yeah. And and the one thing that's extremely important is if you can really, really, like I said, bury the ego and, and really take these things in, 
I mean, the things you'll learn at Memory Blue will last your entire career. For almost two decades, Memory Blue has helped high-tech firms tackle their sales development challenges and carve out bigger market share in their space. Building and executing a carefully designed multi-touch cadence that generates a flow of sales qualified leads is the hallmark of our business. Our flexible solutions and talented professionals produce real results that clients can bank on. The end goal of our outreach is scheduling a qualified meeting so you can provide a comprehensive discovery call and bring the sale to a close. This carefully crafted process produces new business opportunities that have converted into over $1 million in closed deals. Hundreds of high-tech companies have trusted Memory Blue to help them grow, penetrate new markets, and test the viability of a new product. If you're interested in learning more about Memory Blue's full sales development services, head to memoryblue.com slash sales. Can you talk a little bit about, I know before we got started that you were talking about sales being a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I've kind of had to learn, I, I don't I think I learned this at Sidcor. I got to be honest with you, where it's like, you're living, you know, when I was living in BC with a group of guys, it was, we eat, sleep, breathe. It was like I was in a, you know, I was playing football in college or something. I, I realized that if you really, really, really want to be a sales professional, it's got to be a lifestyle. You got to live it. You got to breathe it. It's got to be part of your natural DNA. And it's really got to be something you take in because it could bring you a lot of exciting life lessons. And this goes far beyond professional, right? In your, in your, you know, personal life, many other different, you know, extrapolate this across every sort of encounter you ever have with a human being, you know, anywhere at any point in time. Oh, you're going to buy a car. You can be a ninja by negotiating and I mean, just little examples like that. Sales, if you really incorporate it into your life, can be an invaluable, you know, series of lessons and character traits and and just mental thought processes and methodologies, right? So, the way I feel is that if if anybody feels that you know sales is a job where you're like, ah, oh, this sucks. If you don't wake up with a burning desire to get on that phone or get to the office every single day, and when Saturday comes, it sucks. Probably not for you. Maybe not the Saturday part. It's a little extreme, but that's how it is for me. When Saturday comes, it's the worst day of the week. I, 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 can't, I can't exercise you know, my God-given talent or what I've acquired over, over many years of just relentless effort and hard work. So moral of the story is if you want to be you know, a sales guy who has you know, worked from home, makes seven figures, you know, 500,000 seven figures, your boss calls you once a month, you have complete and unlimited freedom. It has to be a lifestyle and just put in the work and it will come. Excellent. Excellent. Walk, walk us through kind of your migration uh, south to South Florida. South Florida. Yeah. So basically what happened is um, for ecosystems. Both Keith's clients offered him jobs to go work there coming out of Memory Blue. And he went to go work with ecosystems um, for all sorts of good reasons. Ecosystems tells Mark, by the way, it's a funny story. Mark, I don't know if you know this. But I, Mark calls me into his office on a Friday, right? I had gone out the night before. I'm like 25 years old, whatever. And I, I just wasn't feeling the best that day. I was a little hungover. Mark calls me into his office and goes, Keith, look, sit down. We got to talk. I'm like, oh, man. And like, did I, is there something I did? And like, these guys are scaring the shit out of me, right? Like, I'm, I feel like I'm fired. I don't know what I did. You know, you kind of just like have anxiety going on. I'm like, I'm just, 
all right, here it is. We're going back to the car. You know, I'm going to have to go in more interviews where I eat omelets. This is here it all comes. And they're like, they're like, dude, uh, you know, what did you do? You know, uh, you know, Jeff Comer got fired as the VP. MJ's not working there anymore. He's like, the whole place melted down. He's like, did you do something? I'm like, Mark, I swear to God. I'm like, in tears at this point. He's like, nah, dude, we're just messing with you. They want to hire you. And I, I'll never forget how I, I, I didn't know whether to cry, laugh, do a, do a backflip or what. And uh, so that's, that sparked. And, you know, so it was like, you know, we went through the process where memory blew, you know, if you're representing a client to hire you. The minute Claridge heard about this, they said, oh, hell no. No, we were about to just tell Mark we wanted to hire him. So then they had a bidding war. Uh, Ecosystem Claridge. I had to go meet both of them, and over a series of weeks, I essentially picked uh, Ecosystems. I essentially picked Ecosystems because I love the VP of uh, Sales, Jeff Comer. I love the sales team. But just guys, imagine this is 2008 summer, at peak of the financial crisis. I mean, like the wheels are falling off. Yeah, let's go into like December, right? Phillies are winning the World Series. I'm having the best time of my life. But I could sense that weird things were going on. Things that if I were to see today, I would, I would spot immediately. And I would, I would know what was happening, that the company was in trouble. We got a call from Jeff that Monday and said, hey, we got to pull the plug. Uh, we're going out of business. So uh, Ecosystems went out of business. I started working for, uh, I actually went back to uh, Chris and Mark, who were my, uh, they were my lifeline at that point. I didn't know anybody in D.C. I didn't know anybody else. I called these guys. Not only did they bend over backwards for me, they brought me in the next day and said, hey, you know, Navy Horse is still not operating, but Chris took, you know, he took integrity and he, you know, he, uh, he did what he had probably done for anybody. He said, hey, look, I'm going to find you something. So he got me lined up with a company called Aperture Software. So I worked for Aperture for a while. And uh, let's just say that that was a, a toxic environment, at least just for me. There were some things that I had. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't so much the leadership team or anything. Uh, I was assigned a manager who basically just, we were like, just, we pretty much hated each other. So I departed Aperture and uh, I had a lot of money saved. So, you know, I went to, uh, I basically had a month. I was going to look around and I went on vacation to Fort Lauderdale. Uh, one, one weekend turned into forever and I moved down a month later. What's important in a boss? What's important in a boss in a is to know that he will ne- is to know that he will never use the term boss. That is the that is the most bold way I can put there it. You if you work for somebody and he feels like it's a friggin' chain of command, mm-hmm. hit the bricks, run for the hills, and and don't look back. Okay, don't even collect two hundred dollars if you pass out. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, is that if if the if the person who's supposed to lead you views you as an employee his lackey or just another dude, you know, sitting in a seat, yeah. just trying to help him pull numbers. Yeah. It's not in your best interest. So versus finding somebody who has your best interest in mind is willing to train you, views you as a colleague and a peer and a teammate. And he wants to lead you and mentor you. And, and I, and I say this to all the newer guys who are coming up, man, especially people who are interviewing at memory blue and even some that have just, just left. If you ever run into that type of boss where he just looked at you, you can ask him, you know, certain questions to get the answer, right? Like, you know, how do you run the team? You know, is it, you know, uh, basically if he's, if it sounds like it's, you know, a military style operation or it's a chain of command and you're just his little lackey, 
you would much rather go the opposite direction and work for somebody who's, who would appreciate you, who would mentor you, teach you, coach you, because the people you pick to work for in some cases can dictate and predicate, you know, the journey that you will have in your professional career. So go with somebody who actually cares. What, what do you think is most important when looking for uh, from a company perspective? You strike me as a person who's like, you're going to be successful kind of, if it, you know, you, I'll drop you on an Island. You're going to figure out a way to set up. Yeah. Camp. yeah. So no, no, good question, Mark. So if I'm, if I'm looking, if I'm looking at a company, I'm really trying to identify who, you know, what, what I, who, who I want to basically work for. The first thing I'll, I'll do is I'll go to LinkedIn and look at the CEO. I want to know his whole life. I want to know his whole, I'm stalking him on Facebook. Um, finding out everything I could possibly want to know about this guy. Is this his first run? Is this the first time he's CEO? Is he just trying to figure it out? Or does he have multiple runs or he's a serial mm-hmm. entrepreneur? So that's, that's good. That's big. Understand the leadership team, right? The CFO is important too. Is it some guy who's just, just thrown in the role? Because, you know, if, if they have a strong CFO, that'll dictate, you know, a lot of the company. And also if you're in technology and software sales, you, you must look at the marketing function look how deep it is and look how strong they are because those three components are, are critically important. Two is the culture, you know, walk around, you know, uh, talk to some of the sales reps, um, get, you know, see who you're going to be working with every day. You know, if you're not working from home, which I, I would think a lot of the guys, newer guys aren't, unless you get to a certain point, you, you really do want to walk around and, and kind of, you know, digest, you know, kind of the environment you'll be working in every day because there's nothing worse than, than going to work for a company where it's like two days in, you're just, you're just not feeling it, even though it might be a good product, not good money. You're not going to be excited to go to work. You may, you know, the people you, uh, you work with, you may just not, they may not be just, you know, the people you would hang out with. So to, so to speak. So the culture is, is dramatically important. Um, and also the product, do your homework on, on the product. It's something I actually acquired way too late, uh, in my sales career, do your homework on the product, ask for a system product demo, you know, do your homework, look, see where that company and their product ranks in their industry quadrant, you know, look at the reviews, go to Glassdoor. I mean, do your homework on the company. What about you individually, you know, you've been with your company for a while. What would you say is kind of the success, the habits that you've built? I mean, you've talked a lot about kind of what you learned at Memory Blue, but there's a whole world of things you've learned since you've left that, that made you a successful enterprise rep. Well, what are those things? Yeah, well, one, I probably learned more at Aperture. As much as, uh, you know, Todd Frederick and I used to butt heads, I learned a lot from that guy. I mean, I, I still, in some ways, emulate you know his hard-nosed tactics today. And I'll tell you, man, he was he was he was tough. And and Mark and Chris, you guys know me. I I, I like getting beat up. Like I like if you're gonna give me some soft criticism, I won't respond to that. I need I need a I need a guy like that. he is the dictator guy, right? So if you want to, you know, you know, a mentor or the other opposite, he was the guy who's going to give you the real answers. He's going to scream at you. If you fall on your face, there's no excuses. Get back up. Let's go. We have goals to hit. And um, I learned a lot from him. So I learned a lot with closing business in the Abisher role, even though it only lasted a year and a half or however long. I learned a lot about about closing business because, Mark, that was my true software sales closing role. That's important because the people who leave Memory Blue, that's that's what they're trying to get to. They're trying to get to a closing role. So you learned a lot in that. Yeah, and that's – 
and that and for the memory blue people or, or people who are listening you know i went from uh, from memory blue to aperture so it was a, a, i was basically a plug and play here's the problem though i didn't know i i've never been in a closing role like i knocked on doors i closed you know verizon applications you know in person you know as a as an outdoor salesman but I had never closed business over the phone and I hadn't done demos. This was kind of my, um, this was kind of the beginning of, of learning actual sales process, understanding pain. Uh, he called a team man, right? Understanding the timeline, you know, uh, understanding a client's timeline. Do they have money? Who is the authority and need and, and really understanding those four key elements into a sales process. And, and really kind of understanding how to manage the second half of the sales cycle. Unequivocally, what I learned at Memory Blue, and, and Todd, I remember Todd telling you guys as I started, Keith is, he schedules more demos, books more meetings. He has the biggest pipeline. Unfortunately, I just, at that point, I didn't know how to close it until, until after. But um, I learned a hell of a lot there because the Memory Blue was a straight, it was a natural progression from Memory Blue to Aperture. It helped me, even though there was a room full of, of guys on the floor at Aperture who had been there, seasoned sales pros like like Ron Frazier, ex Memory Blue guy. Ron Frazier. Yeah, yeah, he was even before me. You know, I was, you know, they were closing more business, but without fail, I was scheduling more demos and completing more demos. Unfortunately, I hadn't learned the second half of the sales process yet. And that's just, you know, at Aperture, that just wasn't my time. So it was, uh, it was, invaluable to have a memory blue experience but going from memory blue to aperture into the closing role sometimes your first closing role you're gonna you're just gonna fall on your face and that's okay falling on your face means that you're learning it doesn't mean that you're failing it doesn't mean you need to question your career it doesn't mean oh am i meant for this no you're learning probably going to go through two more right it's going to suck but eventually there's going to be a day where it clicks and you get it and um and that happened for me. That happened for me later. So what helped me be good at process math and what has helped me become going from kind of just a, a mediocre, you know, tracking a monthly quota kind of sales guy, you know, thirty, thirty-five thousand dollar quota to now I'm carrying seven figures. Um, I gotta be straight with you guys. I just uh kind of faked it till I made it. Right. I uh, got in a process map and I'll tell you, I, I was extremely underqualified, but I just made it work. I just made it work. I used I used what I learned at Memory Blue. I just built just I just had a million discovery calls. And when I say I would go there, I remember my second day I got to the office at six in the morning. I set alarm bells off. I'm the new guy at this point. Right. So I keep, you know, I got a phone call from the CEO to keep. Why in the hell are you with y'all thinking like I'm stealing shit? I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm hungry. <laughs> and then from that time, they, they, they got, you know, you don't set the alarm until five because Keith's coming in. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, but no, basically I just, I used my outbound skills that I learned at Memory Blue and I used some of the closing ability I learned at, at Aperture as well as I had other jobs in between, you know, I had exposure and I really, really, really just kind of, I grew up. I mean, there's, a, there's no other way to put it. I grew up, you know, the Sunday fun days down in South Florida. 
gone, right? You know, it's time, it's time to be serious. You know, uh, happy hour on a Thursday, gone. At that point, it was time for me. I was ready to go because this was my moment, right? I knew that, you know, there were people there making two, $300,000 per year. I'm like, are, are you shitting me? Like the most I've, you know, W2 at that point was like maybe 90. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, this is one I can't mess up. So I basically, I, I, I leveraged every, I, I'm telling you for the first six months to a year, I annoyed the hell out of every single person in the process map. You know, I, I would, I would spend an hour with the CTO asking questions about the technology. I would spend an hour with the CEO asking questions about how he viewed the business. I would spend an hour with the, uh, the product management person understanding the evolution of the system, where it started, where it's got, where it's going and what the future is. Uh, and then every single sales guy, oh my God, if they got one more Google chat for me, it would probably block me okay but there's there's a certain point in your career where you have to understand it is okay to leverage resources it is okay to ask a million questions you need it you, you need when you get to a certain point in your career if not already right starting immediately you need to go to every single person in the company and understand their thought process, how they feel about the business, and, and really kind of download what they have to offer. And if you could plug that into your own personality, um, which I did over time, I just, I just got it. And not to mention, I'll, I'll give shout out to uh, the vice president of sales who led the team I initially first started. He was the mentor, caring, teaching, just wingman of the best boss I've ever had, you know, next to the, you know, Gregory Monzo, who leads me now, who I think played an even bigger role in my career, if not as big as DC, uh, just, it's just different, but I've really had a VP of sales who, who mentored me and he cared. And when he saw me fell on my face, he would take over the conversation and basically wherever there was a conversation and important like closing conversations, I would just take a million notes, right? I would just, and I would study when, when they asked the question, I'd go to recording, plugged it in. Over time, I just, I just remembered everything, right? If you find the right boss who really gives a shit, he'll, uh, he'll lead you, he'll lead you forward. So tell us about your biggest win or your most favorite win. Most favorite win. Uh, but uh, it just happened, actually. Um, you guys are connected to me on Facebook. Happened with a, a, a global conglomerate, $8 billion company called Fortune Brands, right? I found this client through one of my other customers that I signed, right? And they started with me. On, we, we offer, you know, Process Map is basically an enterprise software as a service, cloud-based technology company that, that helps safety, compliance, and environmental professionals digitize their information and regulatory management obligations, right? So when I initially got the phone call, like, hey, Keith, you know, I got your name from so-and-so, which this is why you got to be personable, re referrals down the road or everything. Uh, they, were only looking, they were only looking at one trivial uh, solution that we offer. And, you know, by building good rapport, I basically understood that they had an extremely weak competitor of ours for everything else and spending exorbitant amounts of money. I mean, millions. So essentially over time, you know, this is, this is January. No, I'm sorry. This is December of 18 where we started this. So we go through the process, um, you know, natural, you know, go through a discovery call, uh, you know, demos, um, 
building business cases, uh, you know, technical analysis. I mean, understanding pain, everything you do in an extremely complex sales process that is, that is multi-year. Um, so at the end of 2019, um, I got Right. You know, they, they, they gave us a verbal. So we all away. He's like, all right, look, first week of January, we'll come back. We'll sign, you know, high fives. We're going to fly down to Florida. We're going to do the kickoff and all that jazz. Um, I had even flown on site to a couple other places and all. I mean, this was it's as complex as a sales process you could get. I had to build relationships with four different divisions. Uh, the CTO, CIO, CIO, I mean, every different stakeholder you could possibly imagine. Right. So we finally get to the finish line. I'm on holiday. I don't even think, you know, I'm just, I'm just like, look, I get the biggest, one of the biggest commissions and biggest deals of my career I'll ever get. January comes in and um, he says, Keith, I can't do it. This is the first week of January, right? Now, mind you, I just gone on vacation twice in the past 45 days, right? <laughs> and, and you guys know how I am. I, I like to live it up. I'm, I'm doing restaurants and you know, drinks by the pool and, uh, you know, excursions, all the above, right? So I'm, I'm like, I'm already the commit, the commission, the commission dollars are making me break even, if anything. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm basically my heart drops through the floor. I'm, like, you know, I basically he starts to explain that he just feels like he's rushing into this. So uh, we hang up the phone. A couple of days later, I call him up and I'm like, look, I said, I, I, I think we have lost why we're here. I think we have lost the purpose. I think we lost the mission. I think we missed the business case justifications as to why you know, you're looking to implement our system because he said that they were looking to become, you know, going from one competitive system to the next makes them more efficient. And at that time, I used my strategic sales tactics and tactical efforts to take a step back and say, hey, if I can build a business case that is strong enough to get your CFO and COO to see the value, will you sign? So I met with every division, every plant manager, every uh, you know, business unit leader, and I, every single one of them, every single person, I understood why they would love to replace their system, how bad they, they disliked it, opportunities for improvement. For the higher ups, I said, what is your strategic vision? What, you know, how would you like to evolve the culture of this organization? So the plant level guys, it was functional, technical, technical, what do you hate about the system? High level guys, more strategic business and, and forward thinking. So fast forward, you know, uh, multiple months, you know, because um, my fiscal year ends on March 31st. So you, already got, you guys already know what I'm, I'm marching after. At the beginning of March, we present to, uh, I, I give him the business case and he's like, just speechless because we're, you know, my marketing team got involved and we, we've really hit it. Implementation plan, you'll be live, I hear all the above. So he says, hey, Keith, the means got canceled. Uh, this COVID-19 stuff is uh -oh. killing us. Uh -oh. I'm like, I'm like, here it is. The commission dollars, they were almost there. Now they're, they're even further away, you know, like the, you know, uh, into the ocean. And um, I didn't give up, man. You know, they had a global meeting uh, the first week of April. So um, I actually got the COO, who's basically the senior vice president of operations. I emailed him directly, the business plan. I said, hey, I would really appreciate if you joined this meeting. Because the other guy, the main guy who could sign said, if he comes, you know, we'll, we'll get it. So the first week of April comes, he, he didn't attend. 
So there it is. I lost the deal. I built a business case strong enough that basically the business case was so solid. The senior vice president of said, you know what? These guys are so great. Uh, they, they, they put in all this work, even when you said that they, uh, you know, that, that you thought maybe they couldn't deliver. Plus, we gave them a free quarter of service, actually two free quarters. And then just just put those two months, two quarters on the back end of the contract. So we gave them two free quarters and just made their term of the contract longer. And uh, not only did it get it, I mean, my biggest deal in my career, some of the biggest commissions, and uh, I like to think I saved jobs at the company I worked for. So it was uh, very, that, that had to be the most biggest emotional draining and rewarding deal. When did it close? April 25th. So here's the thing. We don't close our books or the fiscal until April 31. You get a 30 day lag. I counted towards my previous fiscal, hit all my numbers. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> nice work, Hoffman. Because I, I made them, I made the senior, I made the director. I said, dude, you can't change this 331 date. You got to yeah. leave that there. Yeah. So we're not charging you two quarters anyway. Just leave it there and make me look like a hero. I was going to say, oh, well, that was your biggest one. What about your, your most painful loss? Most painful loss is, uh, I'll say it, it's, it's uh, Kohler. Is uh, Kohler. Like if you go to the bathroom, you'll see them in like 80%, whether it's faucets, this, that, home. And they do all of, you know, home for, uh, plumbing and, and everything, whole company. So uh, basically same experience as, um, as, uh, as, as, as uh, Fortune Brands. But um, unfortunately, unfortunately, at the end, uh, the decision maker who decided on our competitive vendor didn't tell anybody. But all along the way, he uh, he used them in another company, and I wasted two, three years of my life and all the opportunity cost of three years of of demos on sites, twenty hour days. All of that was lost not knowing that 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 floor was going to be pulled you know the rug was going to be pulled from under me when i least expected it so a valuable lesson in complex sales is sometimes you're going to lose and uh you know what you do when you lose is is basically what will dictate you know you know how you are is not just a person but a sales rep and and i found uh, i found fortune brands and closed a bigger one so it came to fruition there are all sorts of ups and downs in high tech sales. And, um, you know, you worked with a lot of good people, uh, both at memory bloom beyond, but what's, what's, what's the one thing that you kind of see other people, uh, don't do some, some pitfalls they run into when they leave as they, as they're kind of doing executing on their career path. I would say if, if people are hitting their goals, you know, they're not working hard enough. You know, sometimes I'll see people who are like at like 60% of their quota, Barely making money, unhappy, miserable, and they're coming in at 9.01, right? Then 12 o'clock hits, they're taking hour-long lunches, 4.59 comes, they're out the door, and, 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 it, it, and it makes me sick for their families. And I say that very aggressively and almost, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but I really mean it when I say it, it makes me sick to my stomach when somebody has talent, abilities, and skill. Like they say in Bronx Tale, there's nothing worse than wasted talent. And this person's coming in, you know, they're starting two, two to three hours after I did. Take it, I haven't had a lunch in, in 15 years, right? What lunch? I eat oatmeal at my desk when I'm pounding the phone. 
Okay. Uh, I, I haven't stopped working before midnight. I mean, I go to the gym, there's periodic changes. I walk, you know, watch Mad Money with Kramer to watch my stocks and all that crap. But, you know, it, it, just, just watching people's lack of diehard commitment has been the most challenging thing for me to watch. Another thing is, uh, look, sales quotas don't have feelings, man. Look, sales quotas, they do not have feelings. And every time you make an excuse, problems, um, you know, unexpected expenses, uh, you know, unexpected challenges, if, you know, if that's an excuse, the sales quota still sits there and, you know, only the strong will survive. So it's up to you to dictate, you know, how much that'll affect you. And if you could, you know, if you can, uh, you know, dust it off and, and plow forward, so don't make excuses. Just keep going. No one cares. Well said, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, that was ending ending with an exclamation point. All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks for your time. I know that anybody who's listening or who works for us now can hit you up on LinkedIn and probably reach out to you and schedule a time to talk to you at any time. So, uh, you know, whenever we do these things or fireside chats in the office or if I talk to people who work for us now, say, hey, don't be afraid to send this guy Keith Hoffman a LinkedIn note and, you know, but Ben is here a little because he'll share with you some good information, some good good insight. Yeah, not not only that for for everybody who's listening, I've I've aggregated uh, my favorite YouTube video, my favorite um, YouTube channel. Uh, I digest a lot of YouTube videos, especially for the new guys. If you are not going on YouTube at least a couple times a week to look at sales tactic training, I have a good web I have a good web uh, web channel you could go to. You have so much content content out there I never had before. You guys can literally skip years in advance. All right, Hoffman. This was a lot of fun. Likewise. Peace. The pain of finding and hiring strong sales professionals is a critical challenge that is widespread and getting worse. The Memory Blue Direct Hire Service specializes in filling sales development roles within the high-tech space. And with a one-year performance guarantee and 0% interest financing, you can feel secure in your selection process when you use Memory Blue Direct Hire. As a company, we hire close to 300 SDRs annually across our five office locations. That's nearly an SDR per day all year long. Finding, hiring, and developing sales talent is the core strength of our business. Now we're letting the public tap into the resources of our world-class talent team, specifically trained to find high potential SDRs in order to close this gap. For more information on this service, check out memoryblue.com slash direct. Thanks for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beat. Thank you.